Four presents the Mark Steele Lectures, a series of lectures on people with a passion. Tonight, Lord Byron. It seems incredible now that a romantic poet could ever have been a major celebrity in Britain, because in modern Britain we seem to be ashamed of things like poetry or the opera. So, for example, when England plays a European country at football, you get the foreign fans, especially the Dutch, they'll sit at one end going, Verdi, football fans. And at the other end, the England fans are going, you're shit and you know you are. <laughs> When I was a kid, if anyone in the room accidentally switched onto BBC Two and got a crotchet of opera or a line of poetry, we'd all go, Ugh, and then as soon as we turned it off, make that sort of noise, like when you got rid of a spider out of the house. He said, thine, it's disgusting. And what is it with all the awe and air and these silly words? They're not words. Of course you can make things rhyme if you make words up. That's the same as the Bay City Rollers going with shang, shang, a lang, thangy, bangy, dang, dang, whatever it is. Anyone can do that, I can do that. Yesterday I went to Catford, dibbity, dibbity, bidbity, Watford. That's easy. <laughs> On the odd occasion a teacher did try to enthuse us about the virtues of this stuff, they'd miss where we were at completely. I remember a teacher trying to convince us that the romantic poets used their words to seduce women, and I thought, no, come on. Not in Swanley, I don't think so. <laughs> Not in the bus shelter with Jane Hutwood, I don't think so. <laughs> so, to make up for that in this programme, I'm going to try and argue that the whole point of Lord Byron's life and his poetry was to stick up for the teenager in the bus shelter. Byron was born in 1788, one year before the start of the French Revolution, which, as well as its enormous impact on history and politics, transformed every aspect of culture. The first time across Europe now, it was possible to believe that it was people with talent who could influence every aspect of society, rather than those who'd been born into positions of status. Anything suddenly seemed possible, anything could change. It was a period that created Beethoven, Schubert, Mendelssohn, Chopin, Liszt, Rossini, Verdi, Wagner, Turner, Constable and the Romantic Poets. Whereas I wonder if in 200 years' time people would say about the late 20th century, it was an amazing time, you know, giving rise to Beadle, Davidson, Davro, Lloyd Webber and Hurley. <laughs> As the Industrial Revolution gathered pace, architecture was creating buildings that had maximum productivity. Rural Britain, much the same, redesigned in the same way, making thousands of people homeless. Education became solely about, as we know, Mr Gradgrind in Dickens' novel, facts, facts, facts. And so the Romantic trend was a challenge, really, to this philosophy. Now, like many of the Romantics, Byron had one of his heroes as the Genevan philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who wrote... Man is born free, but everywhere is in chains which is so French. <laughs> if an English philosopher had come up with that idea, he'd have expressed it by going, and it dreadful. <laughs> now, the year that Rousseau died, Byron was born into the landed gentry, and his first few years were a tad unorthodox, really. He was born with a club foot, which made him lame all his life. His father, who was called Mad Jack, spent the entire family savings on drink. Then he declared he was in love with his sister, who he lived with until he died from alcoholic poisoning. When he was ten, his uncle, who was in charge of the Byron grounds in Nottingham, died. And so Byron became Lord Byron of Newstead. From his estate, Byron was sent to Harrow, where he received an allowance of £500 a year. But this turned out to not be enough for Byron, so he arranged a loan so that he could buy a coach. <laughs> as a student. Because <laughs> this is the way that class thinks, you see. Oh, I've got a geography lecture Wednesday. I'd better buy a horse and a carriage. <laughs> This sort of expenditure got the family into trouble, so his mother compiled an account of the estate's expenditure for one year, which went... Garden labourers, £156. 
One gamekeeper, £39. One servant, £30. One bear, £20. <laughs> that brilliant. They're in financial trouble and they've got a bear. <laughs> I suppose they must see it the same way as destitute pensioners see the fags. Well, I can't get rid of the bear. It's the only pleasure I'll get. <laughs> From Harrow, Byron then went to Cambridge, where he began displaying the flamboyance that he became known for. He became an expert swimmer, an expert boxer, and he viewed his disability as a challenge. And then he went through all the typical traumas of aristocratic adolescent love, falling for unattainable older women, falling in love with a woman who ignored him, and being fiddled with by the teachers. Which I get the impression is part of the curriculum at public school. You probably get Ofsted inspectors round. Can I sit in on your fiddling this afternoon, Miss Ron? <laughs> Credit where it's due, though. I bet English public schools are the only places in the world where you get fiddled with in Latin. <laughs> Come here, boy. Fiddly-um, fiddle-avi, fiddle <laughs> So in one sense, then, he was privileged, but he was riddled with these doubts and questions. And at 18, he wrote... I have really no friends in the world. My old school companions walk about in monstrous disguises, in the garb of guardsmen, lawyers, parsons, fine gentlemen, and other masquerade dresses. That's Cambridge for you. <laughs> if you'd given it a couple of hundred years, he could have added incompetent spies and David Baddiel. <laughs> Here, though, is where you see, I think, the origins of the torment and the fervour that guided Byron through his life. He hated the lifestyle of the wealthy, but he loved their wealth. And he was cynical about the condition of the England that he and his former friends were being taught to rule. Thousands were starving at this time as the new factories were driving craftsmen out of work. And to prevent an uprising, the government introduced imprisonment without trial. Unions were banned and there was the death penalty for stealing 40 shillings or more. Byron was cynical then about the rulers of England and their values, but not just in a directly political way. He was coming to despise them for the way they were destroying the imagination and human spirit. Which is why the form of protest he went for wasn't union activist or underground conspirator but romantic poet. Byron was driven by something that seemed to have no place in functional industrial Britain, passion. So apart from the swimming and the boxing, he fell in love ridiculously easily with women and with men. At one point he wrote, There is something very softening in the presence of a woman, some strange influence, which I cannot at all account for. Even Mrs. Mule, my firelighter, the most ancient and withered of her kind, <laughs> always makes me laugh. <laughs> and so Byron lived to be passionate. He picked up the spirit of the supporters of the French Revolution and he couldn't stand the safe cosiness that attracted some of his contemporaries, especially those who had supported the revolution but had now changed their mind. So Byron, who could have strolled through life as a politician or as a lawyer or a guardsman, parson or fine gentleman, channeled his passion into poems. But his first collection, called Hours of Idleness, was slated in the Edinburgh Review as... So much stagnant water. For a while then he became a boxing manager, arranging fights for the English and Irish champions. And Now there's a the thing, being a boxing manager and a poet at the same time... <laughs> and you know, some of that sort of fits in, doesn't it, with the exuberance of a 19th century radical, whereas you couldn't really imagine it with a modern English boxing manager. You think the best poetry they could come up with would be ten grand up front now, my fella, or I'll pull Frank from Cinderella. <laughs> As his debts mounted, he embarked on a tour of Europe with his friend and fellow poet called Hobhouse. And one of the first signs of the sort of poetry that was going to make him famous was a poem he wrote as they were leaving on the boat. Hobhouse muttering fearful curses as the hatchway down he rolls. First his breakfast, then his verses, vomits forth and damns our souls. 
And then as he travelled across southern Europe, he saw every destination as a challenge. But it was Greece that won his heart. He swam across a four-mile stretch of bay called the Hellespont, which made him instantly famous locally. Athens seemed to embody for him all the passion for debate, science, philosophy and the arts. But when he got there, of course, he was devastated because the city had been left to decay by the Ottoman Empire. The area around the Acropolis was a shantytown full of beggars. And worse of all, many of the marble sculptures at the Acropolis were being removed and taken to Britain by a senior servant called Lord Elgin. And Hobhouse saw workmen refusing to load some of the marbles onto Elgin's ship as these workmen were convinced that the statues were weeping at being sent into exile. Now, one way that Byron responded was to write a poem called The Curse of Minerva about a curse placed on Elgin by the Greek gods, and it's full of abuse about Elgin. For example, Let Elgin stand through ages yet unborn, a fixed statue on the pedestal of scorn. When Byron returned to England, frame workers put out of work by employers of the Industrial Revolution, had started their machine-wrecking protest, known as the Luddite Rebellion, after the mythical leader Ned Ludd. So, at the age of 23, Byron went to the House of Lords to make his first speech, in opposition to the introduction of the death penalty for Luddites. The rejected workmen, in their blind ignorance, imagined the well-doing of the industrious poor were of the greater consequence than the richness of a few individuals. And he lampooned the efforts of the military to put down the action, saying... They arrive just in time to witness the mischief already done and return to their quarters amidst the derision of old women. Could there be anything more humiliating than that? Because <laughs> I imagine these old women he was talking about as being like Martha, the tea lady at the first job that I ever had, who used to come round with the cakes and biscuits on a trolley and when she saw I was new she said, Oh, hello dear, oh, you're new and nervous. Now, would you like a bit of cake or a bit of the other? I bet you wouldn't mind a bit of the other. Woo! <laughs> Oh! <laughs> That's what it must have been like. Oh, look, that one's got a tiny musket. Oh! <laughs> Byron then had enormous sympathy for the Luddites, but his life was spent surrounded by the nobility. And this became even more true a few days after his speech when his poem Child Harold's Pilgrimage was published. Uh, this poem tells the story of a knight following the routes that Byron himself had taken across Europe, and it was hugely popular, so that London society, especially Lady Caroline Lamb, swooned before him, and the word used at the time was swoon, so no wonder the blokes were jealous of him, because after all, most blokes, throughout the ritual of chatting someone up, are conducting a constant commentary to themselves. Oh, hang on, no, we're doing all right, she's smiling, that's a good sign. Well, made her laugh, that's got to go down well. <laughs> oh, no, who's this bastard here? <laughs> Oh, no, it's all right, it's her brother. We're all right, we're off the hook. <laughs> we're not for Byron, it was just, good afternoon. Oh, she's fainted. <laughs> and what a sign of how low poetry has slipped in our esteem. Nobody swoons at poetry anymore. The nearest we get to romantic poetry is the bit on a birthday card that goes, here's to say I love you in my own sweet loving way on this very, 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 very special day. <laughs> How can you account, then, for the popularity of this radical, stroppy, Luddite-supporting poet amongst the good nobility of London society? Now, partly it reminds me of the night in 1981 when I was invited to recite a dreadful poem I'd written about being on the dole to the Dulwich Poetry Society, and it ended with two lines that were aimed at Margaret Thatcher that went, Because of what I dread, I'd rather you were dead! <laughs> Now, I thought that the reaction of these people could only go one or two ways, really. Either they would just be sick on the spot, or they would say, my God, he's right, and sell their house and go and fight with the Sandinistas. <laughs> but instead, they went... <laughs> as if I'd scored a single in a county cricket match. 
And then one of them said, You did very well to remember all the words. <laughs> it's as if people living cosy, predictable lives feel repressed themselves by the unofficial rules that govern their behaviour. So they like a little bit of fiery as long as it's a, a distance. And my poem was rubbish, whereas Byron's wasn't, and the people swooning at Byron were, of course, far more repressed than the people in Dulwich in 1981. Just. <laughs> Byron was a link now with the spontaneity and the romance that these people weren't supposed to feel. He began an affair with Lady Caroline Lamb, and although she was married, they would meet almost every day. Some days, in fact, she would disguise herself as a page so that she could meet him. But, I don't know, it seems to me she needn't have worried, really, because what would her husband have said if she'd found out? Be like, now, if you found out your wife was going out with Robert De Niro, you'd go, oh, fantastic! <laughs> Next time you go out with him, can I meet him? <laughs> you think you'll mind if I go up to him and go, you screwing my wife? <laughs> so... He took up a number of other offers from women and was reputed to have got a maid pregnant, but one woman pursued him relentlessly, Annabella Milbank, and for about a year she contrived to be at the same functions as Byron, read his poems so that she could discuss literature and art and politics with him, and then, when he took an interest in her, they got married. Although, beforehand, Annabella did write a list of her requirements for an ideal husband. Genius is not, in my opinion, necessary. Rank is indifferent to me, but good connections are an important advantage. I would not enter into a family where there is a strong tendency to insanity. <laughs> Which sounds very much to me like the modern values of a small town, and a sort of an aristocratic version of... I don't mind if he ain't bright or posh nor nothing, as long as he's got a few quid and our driver wasn't mental. <laughs> she also believed then in many of the functional values to which Byron was opposed, and the marriage was of course destined to be a disaster. Although there was another reason why it went wrong, which was that Byron started having an affair with his sister. <laughs> It's a pity his dad wasn't still alive or he could have gone, you making me proud, my son. <laughs> On top of all the other problems this calls, think of the poor bloke, though, at a party trying to chat Byron's sister up. All right, no, she's smiling, we're in with a chance. No, it's all right, yeah, made a laugh, going very well, very well indeed. No, we think, oh, Christ, no, who's this bloke here? Oh, God. Oh, no, it's all right, it's, it's her brother. Hey? <laughs> He described his state of mind as... Between metaphysics, mountains, lakes, and the nightmare of my own delinquencies, I would have blown my brains out, but for the recollection that it would have given pleasure to my mother-in-law. <laughs> he had another reason for sinking into a melancholy state. See, his radical hopes had been almost entirely invested in the spread of the French Revolution, even when the French Republic was ruled by Napoleon, and in April 1814, Napoleon finally surrendered and abdicated and was sent into exile. For four days, Byron stayed alone in his room, describing what he did during this period of mourning. Today, I boxed an hour, wrote an ode to Napoleon, and ate six biscuits. <laughs> what a fantastic assortment of activities. <laughs> what would have happened if he'd been in there a week? Today, I composed a symphony, drilled a hole in my foot, and couldn't find the tea strainer. <laughs> then... As Byron re-emerged into society, he took a place on the board of the radical Drury Lane Theatre and had an affair with an actress, despite the fact that uh, Annabella was pregnant. And so she gave up and divorced him. Byron's behaviour might have been inexcusable, but you wouldn't say he was thoughtless. That would be the wrong word, it seems to me, because pain, he was aware, was something that was gruesome, but at least it registers you're alive. And when Byron described pain, he meant it. He also meant it when he wrote... She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies. 
and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes. Whereas no one could listen to S Club 7 and think, God, you feel how they're really desperate to reach for the stars. <laughs> Any more than you'd listen to Rolf Harris and think, now that's a bloke who really needs to get that kangaroo tied down. You know? <laughs> Byron despised the poets that he saw as the S Club 7s of his day. Most of the romantic poets had abandoned by this time all the radicalism and passion, especially after the tyranny and defeat of Napoleon. And they'd gone to live in the Lake District, most of them instead. Bob Southey, one of the ex-radicals, became the poet laureate, writing a victory ode to celebrate the English defeat of Napoleon. And Byron wrote about him, I beg leave to wish Mr Southey damned. Now, you can see where he's coming from, because it seems to me there's nothing more depressing than somebody abandoning their principles to become another schmaltzy celebrity. It's like Ben Elton teaming up with Andrew Lloyd Webber. I mean, <laughs> when I heard this, I thought, how could this happen? Because, to be honest, I've never really liked the bloke, but you could see that lurking there, there was some semblance of talent. Why on earth he would want to give all that up and go to work with Ben Elton? I've no idea. <laughs> Now, though Byron had been devastated by Napoleon's surrender, he remained a follower of the ideals of the French Revolution. So when he published a poem in which he described Napoleon as freedom's son, middle-class opinion then turned against him. He was ostracised by every other member of the House of Lords. And according to one biography... Newspapers compared him to Nero, Henry VIII and the devil. That'd be handy to be all three, wouldn't it? Because <laughs> you could reject Rome, then set fire to it, and then fiddle while it burnt. Byron felt he had little choice but to leave the country, which he did, travelling to Lake Geneva, where he met the man who became one of his closest friends, Shelley, along with Shelley's girlfriend, Mary, and her stepsister, Claire Clermont. Shelley was even stroppier than Byron, and as a result, he'd never attained any level of fame after being expelled from Oxford for writing a pamphlet called The Necessity of Atheism. Byron noticed that when Shelley signed into a hotel, he signed his name Atheist, and under destination wrote Hell. had never met anybody as passionate about revolutionary ideas and applying that to poetry and though they disagreed about Napoleon nonetheless the group remained close especially in the case of Byron and Claire Clermont as he got her pregnant you do feel that if Byron came round your house one day and your grandmother was there you'd be a little bit uneasy about popping out to put the kettle on wouldn't you? well he was so romantic there he said he said I walked in beauty like the night then, in 1820, in Naples, he surpassed himself. He started going out with Countess Guiccioli, right under the nose of her husband, the Count Guiccioli, who found out and then said that he didn't mind. The Count even let Byron rent a room in his palazzo, which Byron shared with his daughter Allegra. But unluckily for the Count, Europe was turning back to revolt at this point. On every wall across Naples was scrawled, Long live the Republic! Down with the Pope! Byron became the organiser of the weapons for the revolution. He sent out the word that he could stockpile the guns and gunpowder and collected an arsenal of 150 weapons, which he kept in his flat, owned by the Count. Now, this has got to win, I think, the all-time historical award for front. In effect, what he's saying to the Count is, I'm giving you Mrs. a seeing to with your permission while living in your flat, filling your house with weapons for a revolution that will overthrow you. I wonder if he used to knock at the Count's door and go, I couldn't borrow your robe, because your missus, it turns her on something frightening. <laughs> Instead, when the Count found these guns, he issued an ultimatum to his wife to choose between Byron and him. Mm -hmm. 
But when word got out that the Count had done this, the whole of the city supported her and Byron, including the Pope. <laughs> he really was one of life's losers, wasn't he, the Count? <laughs> the trouble, of course, with tragicomic lives is that eventually comes the tragedy, and when it happened to Byron, it piled up even more implausibly than the comedy. First of all, the revolution was crushed by an Austrian invasion and papal police sentenced known militants to death, although Byron himself was sentenced to exile. Now, feeling that a flat doubling as a revolutionary headquarters wasn't an ideal home for a five-year-old, he placed his daughter in a nunnery. What then happened was that after the Austrian invasion, Byron moved to Pisa without her, and while there, he learned that in this freezing cold nunnery, his daughter had died. Byron then moved in with Shelley, who a few weeks later set off on his boat, the Ariel, to a place called Leghorn, but the boat sank in a storm, and then Byron's closest friend went missing as well. So two weeks later, Shelley was washed ashore, only recognisable because of a book of Keats that he'd got in his pocket. Byron and his friends held a ceremony in which they burnt the corpse. And so Byron carried on really with the work, in particular with the one poem that he'd been writing ever since he'd left England, which was going to take his fame and his notoriety to new heights, Don Juan. And it is Don Juan, incidentally, and not Juan, as the rhymes just simply don't work unless it's Juan. <laughs> the next thing that strikes you about this poem is its length. Eight lines to a verse and 2,000 verses. It tells the story of Don Juan and his travels around Europe, wandering through turmoil, a shipwrecked boat on which the survivors eat each other, taken into slavery by sultans from where he escapes by dressing as a woman and so on. And almost every page shocked English society. The start of the poem he called a dedication, which was a tirade of abuse about other poets. The very first rhyme is Bob Southey. You're a poet, poet laureate. Tis true you turned out a Tory at last. <laughs> you might as well write, your grovelling poems are a drag, I'm having you, you Tory slag. <laughs> Literary circles condemned the poem for breaking the rules of rhyme, such as rhyming laureate with Tory at last, or where he says, Oh, ye lords of ladies intellectual, inform us truly, have they not henpecked you all? <laughs> But Byron answered his critics about the correctness of rhyme by telling a story about Ben Johnson, the playwright. A poet called Sylvester and Johnson were challenged to a contest in which they had to make up a rhyme using their own name. So Sylvester wrote, I, John Sylvester, sleep with your sister. And Johnson came back with, I, Ben Johnson, sleep with your wife. And Sylvester said that doesn't rhyme, but Johnson said, no, it's true. <laughs> And Don Juan was condemned for just being coarse and being written for the wider population. But the greatest outrage was caused by the poem's radicalism. Partly this was due to irreverence. Referring to the aristocracy, he wrote that they... Marry their cousins, nay, their aunts and nieces, which always spoils the breed, if it increases. He's one to talk, wasn't he? <laughs> As he was about to write one section, though, he heard the news that Castlereagh, the hated foreign secretary, had gone mad and slit his own throat. And there were all the usual eulogies that you can imagine. Like whenever a world leader dies and you think, well, if people were honest, the newsreader would say... Robin Cook said, to tell you the truth, I never really knew him. I met him once, but he didn't speak any English. <laughs> and John Prescott said, which one was he again? Blimey, I thought he went years ago. <laughs> so, when Castlereagh was buried, Byron wrote a poem for his grave. Posterity will ne'er survey a nobler grave than this. Here lie the bones of Castlereagh. Stop, traveller, and piss. <laughs> when it was published, one typical review was... This miserable man has drained the cup of sin to its 
bitterest dregs. He is no longer a human being, but an unconcerned fiend whose type was never exhibited in a shape of more deplorable degradation. Now that is a review worth boasting about, isn't it? <laughs> the ten years travelling across Europe through high farce and tragedy it had taken him to write this, so it would have been terrible if the review had said, it'll be ever such a job to remember all the words. <laughs> The hostility to Don Juan was the hostility, really, of a social system increasingly obsessed with every aspect of life fulfilling a productive purpose. But Byron was about to embark on something even more controversial. Following on from the nationalist revolts in Spain and Italy, a Greek archbishop formed an army to defend nationalist Greeks against the Ottomans. And Byron was eager to play a leading role. Because part of Byron's passion, of course, was this longing for action. This is a bloke who was very easily bored, as you might be if you'd been a lord at ten and the celebrity of Europe for several years. And so Byron was besieged with offers from factions in Greece that wanted to take advantage of his status and his enthusiasm and his money. And eventually he settled on landing a force at the town of Missolonghi, opposite a Turkish garrison. Which is amazing when you consider he was a poet. Because what usually happens is in a war, some people get so fed up that they turn to poetry. But Byron was so fed up with writing poetry... <laughs> But he turned to war. <laughs> and the town of Missolonghi he discovered when he arrived was built on a swamp. And one afternoon he complained of feeling thirsty, and then, my hour is come, he said, apparently matter of fact, and in 1824, at the age of 36, Byron died. As word spread around Europe, radical groups and nationalists went into mourning. Some radicals argued that Byron's body should be laid in Westminster Abbey, although the writer William Hazlitt suggested that if it was put there, it would get straight up and walk out. <laughs> But elsewhere his reputation grew. Mazzini and Garibaldi, leaders of the revolution that led to the formation of Italy, adored Byron. Mazzini said, The day will come when democracy will remember all that it owes to Byron. It was translated into Polish by Adam Mikiewicz, who led Polish legions against the Tsarist Empire. And in 1981, when Solidarność was formed in Poland, Byron poems were scrawled across the walls of Gdansk by their supporters. Byron, against the stream, flew the flag for staying firm to passion and principles, so that even in the depths of his misery, in his ode to Napoleon, he wrote, Freedom, yet thy banner torn but flying, streams like the thunderstorm against the wind. And that is why I think Byron makes sense today, in these passionless times in which the biggest celebrities are Anthea Turner and Dale Winton and zombies on daytime television pulping the brains of pensioners and the unemployed and all aided by these soulless new Labour-tron politicians like Alistair Darling, who you imagine if his wife asked him if he was feeling horny, he'd probably say, I'm very glad you asked me that question. I'd like to answer by making these two points. <laughs> where poetry is reduced to jingles and slogans so that if Byron were around now, he'd have to work for an agency who'd say, we like it, we really do, we think it's terrific. We've just made a few little changes just to give it that commercial edge, OK? <clears throat> she walks in Tesco's every night for boneless hinds, the kids will scoff, and all that's best to keep clothes white and tuna chunks at five pence off. <laughs> As the drive to a world without passion gathers pace, we can console ourselves that they can never entirely succeed because deep down all of us know, even Alistair Darling, that the most memorable day you ever have is when you suddenly ring up sick and go to Brighton. And when the most <laughs> fantastic sex you ever have is the one that happens out of the blue with a next door neighbour. <laughs> the thing I love about him is that for all his poetic prowess, if he was asked today to write a poem about the weaselly politicians and the anodyne celebrities, the sultans and tyrants and the hypocrites, the Castlereys and Southies of our own time, and sum all these people up in just two lines, the poem I reckon he'd write would be... You're shit, and you know you are. You're shit, and you know you are. The Mark 
Mark Steele Lecture was written and performed by Mark Steele with the help of Mel Hudson and Martin Heider. The producer was Lucy Armitage.